You're listening to a podcast from 702. The Literature Corner. And today it is the reading corner. You get to read whatever you want to. You know that reading, reading, reading is something that is very dear to my heart. Um, and I am determined for us to become even more of a reading nation. You can read a poem. You can read from a book that you are currently reading. It can be a work of fiction, non-fiction. could be something that you read in the Daily Sun. The Sowetan this morning could be an essay that stuck with you from the weekend newspapers. Anything goes. Or maybe you want to perform a poem on air. You can do so as well. And of course, we also know that lyricists can be incredibly good writers. Johnny Clegg is one of them. Writers like Simon and Garfunkel, their lyrics are often incredibly amazing. So you can also perhaps read the words of a song for that matter. As long as we are reading for the next 25 minutes or so, I'm going to be incredibly, incredibly chuffed. We do this about once every five or six weeks. And we should do it more often. I think the tradition of reading aloud for oneself, but also reading for other people, is an absolutely beautiful, beautiful thing. And that's why we have the Reading Corner segment on the Literature Corner. Okay, so give us a call on 11 As always, my standard apology, because I always forget to tell you the day before, to just put in your bag on the way to work a book that you can read from. But I know some of you are listening from home, so you probably have a book handy. And in this digital age, you may be able to Google something uh, from a favorite book. It doesn't have to be a book you're reading currently. It may also be a classic. Anything goes. I'll start us off nine minutes after 11. The Literature Corner. Okay, so I chose two Mandela-themed books that I took from my library this morning. The one is by Kate Sidley. And yes, Kate, I still owe you an author interview on this one. We will have you on the show. Uh, over the next couple of months, when it suits me and you, we'll we'll have you on. But I'll read in the meantime from your book. And it's a very accessible book. And it's a wonderful introduction to Madiba. A lot of Mandela literature is accessible, but a lot of it is also quite dense. And some of you may sometimes wish to buy or read or borrow from your library a book about Madiba. But uh, maybe you are intimidated by the authors or the particular book. 100 Mandela Moments by Kate Sidley is an excellent, excellent uh, start um, because it is so accessible. It it's really is a very good book. And I'm just going to get straight to the beginning part, which is about Mandela, the boy. <clears throat> it's on page 11, naming rights. On the 18th of July, 1918, at Mvezo, a tiny village in the district of Umtata, today Mtata, a baby was born to Nosekeni, Fanny, and Khatla, Henry Mkanyas Yiswa. The baby's father was a chief and an advisor to the local king, and they were a family of some standing in the community, minor royalty of the Tembu tribe. This new baby would grow up in the royal household, although he was not in line to the throne. The child was named Khorishlashla Mandela. The literal meaning of the Isitosa name Kholishlashla is pulling the branch of a tree, but it is more generally understood to mean troublemaker. There's an old saying that a loved child has many names, and this was the first of many names assigned to the child by family, culture, and affection. 
The day he started school, the teacher gave every child an English name, as was then the custom. His new name was Nelson, which he later speculated might have been for Lord Nelson, the great British naval hero. In his long life, Nelson, Khorishlashla, Mandela, both caused and experienced trouble and proved himself to be a great leader. So perhaps the names were well chosen. Madiba, his clan name, referred to the Tembu chief who ruled the Transkar in the 18th century. In later years, Mandela was widely and affectionately known by this name. Once he had been through the traditional Kosa initiation ritual, Mandela was given the name Dalibunga, which means founder of the council. His city friends sometimes called him Nal when he was a young man. Over time, Mandela became known affectionately as Tata, the Isitosa for father, and then Kulu, a shortened form of the word for grandfather. Old struggle comrades sometimes refer to him as the old man. The Literature Corner. Okay, and then she's got another lovely little vignette here. Um, called of donkeys and dishonor, so you can see they're just like small little vignettes, and they and they're wonderful. You can imagine if you're a teacher, particularly with young ones entrusted to your care, how wonderful this book can be. You can just read from it uh, to a to a whole class or kids that are coming to your house in the afternoon. Maybe you can give this to Granny, who's looking after the kids for the weekend, something to do with the children. This is the kind of value that this particular book has. But you can read whatever you want. doesn't even have to be Mandela-themed, right? Maybe you've got a novel with you, a work of nonfiction right now, poetry, anything goes. O double one double eight three zero seven zero two. Okay, so I'm going to read from Of Donkeys and Dishonor, also from 100 Mandela Moments by Kate Sidley. And then, Chris, I'm going to come to you uh, on the lines after that. A young Nelson Mandela and the local boys were taking turns to jump up onto the back of an unruly donkey. When his turn came, just as Mandela jumped up, the beast bolted into the nearby thorn bush and he was soon thrown, scratched and bloody to the ground, much to his humiliation and doubtless the great amusement of the other boys. Mandela's autobiography, Long Walk to Freedom, describes how this childhood humiliation taught him a lesson. He wrote, I had lost face among my friends. Even though it was a donkey that unseated me, I learned that to humiliate another person is to make him suffer an unnecessarily cruel fate. Even as a boy, I defeated my opponents without dishonoring them. Isn't that a beautiful insight? Hey, from childhood? I love that. And then Kate goes on. It was just one of many lessons he learned growing up in the small village of Kunu. Mandela spent his time playing in the felt with the village boys, stick fighting, gathering fruit and honey, catching birds and fish, walking the hills and swimming the streams, and tending and herding cattle. It was an upbringing that gave him a deep and long-lasting love of the land, much later during his years in prison. He would think back to those days and write about the simple pleasures of a rural childhood drinking milk straight from a cow's udder, roasting millies over an open fire. Mandela was to face many powerful and oppressive opponents. While he fought them courageously with full force, when the time came that he had the power, he allowed them the opportunity to come over to his side without humiliation. The Literature Corner 
Kate, thank you for this wonderful book. And um, I must reach out to you sooner than I, I think I had intended to. I just want to be in conversation with you about it. It's so beautiful. But let's go to the lines. Chris, good morning. Thank you for calling in. Yes, it is. And I'm delighted to be able to chat to you. And I hope you won't mind if I read a little poem. <laughs> Absolutely not, Chris. What is the poem? And then go okay, straight for it's it. It's by a Canadian poet, not very well known, Robert W. Service. Okay. And uh, he, he uh, was fairly prolific, I think, at uh, about the turn of the last century. And he wrote this little poem called The Junior God, which uh, has a lot of lovely rhyming and clever internal rhymes and things, and then a wonderful punchline. Tell me when to start. Go for it. Okay. The junior God looked down from his place in the conning towers of heaven, and he saw the world through the span of space like a giant golf ball driven. And because he was bored, as some gods are, with high celestial mirth, he clutched the reins of a shooting star, and he steered it down to earth. The junior God mits leaf and bud passed on with a weary air, till lo, he found a pool of mud, and some hogs were rolling there. And in he jumped with gleeful cries, and down he lay supine, for they have no mud in paradise, and they likewise have no swine. The junior god forgot himself. He squelched mud through his toes. With the careless joy of a wanton boy, his reckless laughter rose, till... Tired at last, in a book close by, he washed off every stain, and softly, up to the radiant sky, he rose, a god again. <laughs> the junior god now heads the role in the list of heaven's peers, and he sits in the house of high control, and he regulates the spheres. But does he wonder, do you suppose, if even in God's divine... The best and wisest may not be those who have wallowed a while with the swine. And that's it. I love it. Thank you so much for that, Chris. I love it. The Junior God by Robert W. Service, who is a Canadian poet, apparently. Yeah, I've never heard of him, but I absolutely love that. You can give a call and uh, you can read as well. It is the reading corner here on the Literature Corner today. 011-883-0702. That is the number where you can reach us. 011-883-0702. It is 18 minutes after 11. The Literature Corner. Okay, so, yeah, um, a couple of you are saying, can we also send them my voice note? Absolutely, you can, Sipo. We'll try and recover your one from our voice note number as well. I think here is one of them. Here's a song on Mandela Day about freedom. Like a bird on a wire, like a drunk in a midnight choir, I've tried in my way to be free. And like a worm on a hook, like a knight from some old fashioned book, I have saved all my ribbons for thee. And if I, if I have been unkind, 
I hope, I hope that you can just let it go by. And if I, yeah, I've been untrue, I hope you know that it was never to you. For like a baby, stillborn, like a beast with his horn, I have torn everyone who reached out for me. But I swear by this song and by all that I have done wrong, I will make it all up to thee. I saw a beggar leaning on his wooden crutch. And he said to me, you must not ask for so much. And a pretty woman leaning in her darkened door, she cried to me, Hey, why not ask for more? Or like a bird on the wire, like a drunk in a midnight choir, I have tried in my way to be free. Leonard Cohen by Alistair Butchard. Damn! Isn't there anyone, guys? I don't want to brag, but is there another talk radio station that can claim to have such an incredibly interesting, diverse listenership as 702? Ek The Literature Corner. That was just gorgeous. Abel, you've got to send that to me. I want to listen to that like alone in my flat later again. <laughs> that one particularly, even though we're going to podcast this entire segment, I want that excised out of the 30 minutes because I would listen to that specifically. Lovely. Love it. Hello, Lynn. Hi, Eusebius. What are you going to read, Lynn? I tell you what, I'm just going to give you a little brief background. I just think I found something which I think is really appropriate. Yes. It's a, I'm just going to read you the end of a poem by Chris Van Zeyck, um, who died in 2014 mm. at age 57 of pancreatic cancer, mm. like Johnny did. Mm. And um, he was very famous, um, amongst other things, for writing a children's adaptation of Nelson Mandela's Long Walk. That's right, yeah. yeah. And um, so all I'm going to read is that, um, just, I'm just reading a, a little bit of background here. It says, in the late 17, 70s, when the country was in a very dark place, he dedicated a poem called Candle to his friend, Kaplan, another a Rivoli raconteur who died too young. Hmm. And the poem ends like this. Read, brother, read. Only the wick shines red now, but it is not yet dark. Remember, brother, it is not yet dark. I love you, Lynn. 
thank you, CPS. That was gorgeous. Such an important insight as well. Love Chris Van Weg. The other cool thing about Chris Van Weg, as you know, and you would have heard him many times, especially with Jenny Chris Williams here on 702, is he was just so good at telling stories, quite apart from being an amazing writer and good with children as well. I could listen to him the whole day. Oh, absolutely. I'm yeah. so glad also appreciating you see this. I love your reading corner. I think you, you're doing such a good job every, every week. And Thank today you, Len. Very, very special. Thank you for your generosity. Hello, Dawn. Good morning. Good morning to you. I have a very short letter that was written in the Penny Love Letter Writer, a complete guide to correspondence in 1883. Mm. It's very short. May I read it? Of course you may. I'm all ears. Thank you. It says, Dear Sir, I duly received your flattering epistle and feel honored by the kindness of your regard but I have resolved to remain faithful to the memory of my deceased husband. I shall esteem you all the more for the honor you meant me. That's all. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Dawn. Thanks so much for that. My way to... Good day, Eusebius. How are you? I'm having a very good day, to be honest. Besides the two brilliant guests in the middle hour, I'm loving everything that I'm hearing from from you in this literature corner. What are you going to read for us? I also enjoyed that uh, program, particularly that song of Johnny Clare. Yes. But anyway, let me get what the paragraph I wanted to read. Yes. The Koi Koi and the Dutch. A new society drawn from three continents. Resistance by Gonema and Dora. In 1673, the company went to war with Kochokua, an inland group whose leader, Gonema, they accused often on shaky grounds of numeral assaults on Europeans. The Second Koikoi Dutch War consisted chiefly of punitive Dutch expeditions directed against Gonema and other people on tenuously associated with his alleged offenses. This gave the company a fine yield of livestock and prompted numerous Koi Koi groups to offer their services to Dutch. In 1677, Konema concluded peace with the colony, promising to bring it an annual tribute of 30 head of cattle through the company did not always insist on street payment of the tribute. Onema remained overtly submitted to this Congress until his death in 1685 or 1656. I thank you, Eusebius. Thank you, my way to Pietrus, good morning. How are you? I'm extremely well. You want to read from Schlumelo Bico's, what, his first book or, or the latest one? It's the first book, the first book, the one of the great African society. Yes, I've read that book here. He writes beautifully and he speaks as beautifully as he writes. What do you want to read for us? Go write for it. All right, thank you. It's coming from chapter 11, uh, titled A More Civil Society. I'll start from, I'll read from the, from page 231, a chapter starting as follows. The Rainbow Nation was founded on the principles that it should be 
a society characterized by parity in the value of each man and woman as defined by the constitution. To, to achieve such parity, the role of African customs, African customary law, and the role of traditional leaders had to be recognized not merely in the constitution, but also by the broader citizenry as the aspect of modern society. This parity was supposed to start first as the foremost in the distribution of rights, and these rights were extended towards a distribution of opportunities to freely express one's liberty. President Nelson Mandela put it this way. We enter into covenant that we shall build a society in which all South Africans, both black and white, will be able to walk tall with, without any fear in their hearts, assured their alien rights to human dignity. A rainbow nation at peace with itself and world, our single most important challenge is therefore to help establish a social order in which the freedom of the individual will truly mean the freedom of the individual. Hmm. Wow. Thank you for that, Beatrice. Makabelo, good morning. Hello, Beatrice. Hello. Yeah, I'm going to do a, a, a poem that I did in 1965 when I was in Spanish 6. Oh, wow. Okay. It's an, Af- it's an African uh, poem. I used to, then we had inspectors, so uh, <laughs> inspectors will come to school so that we must yes. uh, do, uh, recite to them and be given some marks. Yes. So I was one of the people who represented the statistics then because I loved poetry. Yeah. My teacher used to marvel at me when I, 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 I do it, and then he chose me then. This is one of the poems that I love. I love that. So you had to make sure you were you were well prepared for the inspector. Go straight ahead. Read for me. Yeah. The name of the poem is Okay, the line's not holding. We're going to do this, uh, Marco Bello. I'm just going to put you back to my producers, and we'll see whether we can get you on a clearer line. I just love the backstory to this, eh? Remember the inspectors when you are the chosen one? That happened to me once in primary school. The inspector Komora even began often how to read your poem all the way back to standard six. It is half past 11, 19 minutes before noon. No, live, transform. This is 702. This is 702. For the curious. One of the people who called in there was Dawn, who read a letter from one author to someone else from a long time ago, and it immediately sparked a thought for me, and I want to ask you this question. Do you still write letters, like handwritten letters, um, and do you now just find yourself emailing, for example? There's something really special about handwritten letters, but I expect none of you to say yes, but maybe I'll be pleasantly surprised that in 2019, when all of us have smart devices and gadgets strapped to our bodies permanently, that you probably don't sit down and have writing pads that we used to buy from CNA and then goes to the post office and then post someone a mail, a letter that comes through. When was the last time you did that? Are you still in the habit of writing handwritten letters and post them? Or maybe receive them even if you don't write them? 
And the ones that we used to write for each other way back in 19 Fuchek, before the phones became smart and what have you, and before we all had our first Pegasus accounts and all sorts of other email accounts in the early days, do you even still have copies of those? I had a teacher in school who particularly loved writing. He had a beautiful handwriting. Um, the last letter I received was from a high school teacher of mine that wrote to me about two years ago uh, when I got a letter from him handwritten. I still have it somewhere at home. Uh, but before then, probably, I don't know, 15, 20 years before that would have been the last time that I actually received a handwritten letter. And I can't remember the last time I wrote one. But it used to be part of your stationary purchase that you buy, writing pad. And even when I was in Standard 9 and in matric, applying for bursaries and scholarships, you would often, certainly not email different places, but you do it by by hand. Um, even as you apply for, say, for example, a bursary or scholarship, so your cover letter would be done by hand and you'd put it in an envelope and you'd go off and you would post it. And that, I, I would imagine, doesn't happen anymore, but it's really, really special. So I wonder whether you still have any letters left, collections of letter that maybe you keep that were handwritten by yourself or that you received, or is that a tradition that is now completely gone? Obviously, the millennials have no clue what we are talking about at this point. They're probably asking their parents to change to YFM in the car. But for the rest of us who have lived through this technological change, I wonder how much of this ancient thing called writing by hand, posting a letter, you still do, or even just a postcard that's slightly less onerous because just a couple of paragraphs, you can chuck it in the mail while you're on holiday and maybe it will reach someone on the other side.